The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. If you really love a breed, the last thing you want is for it to get real popular. Right? I can, we can all name a list of breeds that have been wrecked over the last couple of decades by people who start seeing dollar signs. And they, they're not breeding the best to the best. They're just looking for a litter because they can get $2,000 a puppy and they don't care who they breed together. That is not what you want. If you love that breed, that is not what you want. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at Dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. This is Nick coming at you solo this week. Joe just texted me and uh, said he couldn't join us on the intro this week. He's uh, battling a little bit of a uh, food poisoning situation. So uh, he's having all kinds of fun over there by himself, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, so I decided to just hop on real quick and let you guys know that uh, this week we have part two with Mark Alcott in in his uh, vet talk episode and we kind of cover a lot of ground here with we we cover from all kinds of bases from your your field first aid kit the first aid kit that you should have in your truck uh breeding we we kind of cover a lot of ground here uh a little bit of joints it's just give it a listen and you know take notes on the specific medication and some of the objects that he says that you should have in your first aid kit because it's always a great reminder and great idea and he's uh he's also giving me the list so uh, be sure to follow us on instagram and facebook if you haven't already and we'll be posting the the list that he was referencing that he jotted down for us 
on there in case you're curious after the fact and, and wanted a reminder to see what he was saying. And that way you can make sure to add it into your kit and your supplies as you go forward. But, uh, yeah, wealth of knowledge. I, I really enjoyed getting to talk to and know Mark and, uh, hope to have him on again one day. And, um, yeah, you know, with this vet series, you know, this will be the third episode in the series. I've got one more that I'm trying to line up. We've been kind of, kind of missing each other on the schedule piece for the past few weeks, but I'm hoping to have one more vet related topic next week. Uh, if not, I still, you know, I still may do it if we can't make it work this week and uh, just release it a couple weeks from now. But I have one more, and uh, you know, so far we've gotten a lot of good feedback. We've also gotten some uh, good constructive criticism as well uh, here and there. You know, it, it, this is one of those topics that in, it induces a lot of people's opinions. Uh, a lot of people are passionate about their dogs, and some people really, uh, you know, feel the need to uh, reach out. And correct a few things or give their thoughts on a few things. And, and it, that's always invited because that's what we're here for. We just want to get better and put out some good knowledge. Uh, but, yeah, we, we got a few good feedback responses as, in terms of the Flea and Tick uh, episode a few weeks ago. Uh, but, yeah, if you have something that you want to share and, and discuss, by all means, hit us up. Gundogityourself at gmail.com. We welcome any and all uh, topics of conversation can be good, could be bad, whatever. Uh, we're not experts on the matter. We just try and put out the best product we can. Right. So, uh, yeah, with that being said, uh, with Joe not here, I guess I will go ahead and read a review for this week. Uh, I'm backing up to the beginning of May, uh, Hallberg GP or Hallberg P. However you pronounce that is titled backing and honoring, I really enjoyed listening to the guest speaker, Daryl Pernat, on episode 91. He really provided a wealth of information on this topic, both clearly and concisely. Keep it coming. And uh, that was a really fun episode to do. We got a lot of really good feedback. And uh, Daryl is one of those I'm already getting requests to have him back on in the future for other topics. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and leaving a review. Halberg, Halberg P., uh, hit us up, uh, again, social media or gundog at yourself at gmail.com. And we'll be sure to shoot a sticker your way in the mail if you would like one, but I, I appreciate the review and guys, seriously, you know, if there's a guest or a topic such as that, that you really like that you would like to see come back on, be sure to let us know. We've had a number of people reach out with guest ideas and topics over the past few weeks, and I've got a list growing, and I'm, I'm trying to get to to all of them the best I can and vet them and kind of see what kind of topics we have. But again, um, topics are – the topic ideas are more – important than the actual guests to start with so if you have a great guest idea that's fantastic give it to us but also let me know what you think they would be good to talk about right uh because you know it, it's one of those I'm, I'm calling some of these guys and i'm asking you know well what, what do you specialize in what do you want to talk about what are you passionate about and they just kind of they don't they don't have anything specific which is fine we'll figure something out uh if, if we want to get them on but the topics and then finding the right guest for that topic that's that's the trick and that's how we're trying to uh stay topic driven and, and specific on this so if you have that by all means let us know and uh I'm not going to keep you too much longer. Uh, hopefully, Joe will be back with us on next week's intro, and we can kind of get back to normal. And, uh, yeah, guys, give this a listen. Again, great information for everybody here, beginners, uh, experienced people, whatever. Uh, just 
Give it a listen. Let us know what you think. And if you have any feedback, topics, suggestions, ideas, be sure to let us know. And again, thanks as always for listening. And uh, go hit that five-star rating if you don't want to leave a review. But uh, the review really helps us out. So be sure to go leave that. And uh, appreciate it. Hope everybody's getting out there and having fun with their dogs. See you next week. We get asked all the time what the most important thing to consider is when training and living with a hunting dog, and they're often surprised when they hear us answer with proper nutrition. It's pretty obvious when you think about it, though. It doesn't matter how well the dog is trained if it doesn't have the right fuel. The saying garbage in, garbage out rings true in dog nutrition. Yukonuba's premium performance lineup goes beyond just protein and fat with a number of different formulas designed to fuel your dog's specific activity level while supporting their recovery and optimizing their nutrient delivery. The proof is in the pudding, or lack thereof, when you make the switch to Yukonuba. You'll see immediate results in your dog's energy level and drive. They have a formula for every type of dog from your hardest working dog in the field to your laziest retired dog on the couch. Head on over to yukanubasportingdog.com to find the right formula for your hunting partner. Make the switch today and let Yukanuba fuel your dog so you can focus on what you and your dog actually love to do, work. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another ugly dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, Mark Alcott joined us again this week to uh, save us from embarrassing ourselves and doing more harm than good with our dogs when there's an incident in the field. Mark, thanks for coming back on and trying to educate us with uh, some basic know-how and, and what you think that the average person should know when taking their dog out hunting and, and training out in the field. Glad to be here. Thank you. Yep. So go ahead and, you know, Let's just kind of, from a broad topic, at what level do you think that the typical and average dog owner and hunter, in your opinion, what should we be prepared for? You know, it, we clearly can't go to school for it, but is like, is there a yeah. certification or right. a type of first aid kit that you suggest? You know, at what level do you think the average person should be be ready for? Yeah, that's uh, that's a fantastic question. I've spoken on this topic a lot. I think we're all what I can do is go over some broad topics of things or problems that people run into when they're out in the field. I mean, I can talk about wounds in general. Um, in this part of the country, we see porcupines and snake bites. I'll talk about those. Uh, I can also talk about heat stroke and allergic reactions and then spend uh, some time talking about uh, components of a good first aid kit. Yep. There are some that are commercially available that are pretty good. Um, 
I can also, if you're interested, I've got a list of stuff that if you want to put this on your website or something like that, you're welcome to do that so people can find it. It includes things like skin staplers that you can get from your veterinarian that most people don't, don't think of until they need it. Um, but I can also read that off as well. Uh, but a good first aid kit in the truck is a great idea. And then we can also talk a little bit about what you should actually carry in your vest when you're out hunting. Let's, let's just so, keep going uh, down that route with the first aid kit. Cause yeah. I think that's what, you know, that's one thing that we could easily do tomorrow is go pick out first aid kits and that doesn't require any special education or certification. Right. So, uh, yeah. you know, let's start there. You mentioned something that's very important is having a different kit in your truck, as opposed to the kit that you carry in the field with you and kind of describe each one of those and why it's important to, you know, have one that's kind of more all encumbersome as opposed to one that's just kind of generic and, uh, you know, maybe just gets you back to the truck. And that's exactly right. That's what I was going to say. The key is that what you carry in your vest is the stuff you're not going to be doing definitive treatment in the field. For example, the idea is if your dog slices up their leg really bad, how can you bandage it in the field, come back to the truck, then clean it out and try and fix it. Yeah. Um, so those are, that's a, a key point there. So I guess the things that I like to see in a comprehensive first aid kit, I'll just sort of read these out. I mean, a great flushing solution for wounds is just a generic eye flushing solution. Like if you go to, the supermarket and get some sterile saline contact lens solution and just carry that squeeze bottle. That's really good for flushing dirt out of wounds and flushing stuff out of eyes. Um, there's also, uh, you should have some hydrogen peroxide and some alcohol as well as uh, a really good skin cleanser for scrubbing up wounds is called chlorhexidine, also called Novasan. Um, you can buy that online You can get some from your vet. Again, your vet's a good resource for all this. If you go with a list, whatever you don't have, they ought to be able to sell you. Yeah. If you can't get it there or, um, you know, you can find it online, but, um, other than the solutions, I think it's a, a good idea also have to have a tube of like triple antibiotic neosporin ointment, you know, um, especially if you're going to put that on like underneath a bandage. You know, have some four by fours if, uh, for a wound, squeeze some neosporin on the four by fours, put that on the wound and then bandage it. And as far as bandage materials, um, I like stuff called vet wrap, which is really good. Coflex is another brand of sort of self adhesive cake. Um, there's also some stuff called elasticon. That's a lot stickier. That's really good. Hard to get off. Um, and it's not really necessarily a temporary bandage, but that stuff's really good too. As I mentioned, having a, a bunch of gauze four by fours, you can get those at any pharmacy. Uh, um, it's also a good, good idea to have a muzzle. That's yeah. That's, I talk that's about, a good one. Yeah. And you say you should have a muzzle for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In case you get hit by the porcupine that we're going to talk about here in a second, or just any kind of injury that, uh, that the dog isn't going to take too kind or once you messing with. And, and I think a lot of people are kind of shocked the first time their dogs get injured in the field, how a dog can go from very just, you know, open and easy about letting the owner do whatever to, if they're hurt, their personality completely changes and they kind of push you off or even nip at you or bite at you, uh, completely 
out of character and that muzzle really helps you help the dog, right? That's exactly right. And as an emergency, when I was an emergency vet, we would tell people this all the time if their dog got hit by a car. I mean, that's a dog that's just been hit by a car or, or bit by a rattlesnake or got into a porcupine. They're not using their, their cerebrum, their brain. They're down in their reptile uh, brain and they're just reacting to pain. They don't, it's almost like they don't even recognize you. So yeah. they will bite you. This dog that loves you and sleeps next to you in the bed for 10 years. If they're in that much pain and they're panicking, they will bite you. Yeah. So just be aware of that. Don't get yourself bit. Yeah. And, and so a muzzle is a good idea. And you're still talking mm-hmm. about the one in the field. So, you know, keep in mind, don't go get one of those big giant hard muzzles, those big giant leather ones. Cause you don't want to be lugging that right. in the field. Get just the, the typical little fold up muzzle, right? Just something yeah, like a nylon muzzle. Yeah. yeah. And something I'd rather have it be a little bit too big, uh, than too small. Okay. Um, those are, uh, uh, things that you should have for sure. Have a couple of them. Um, a box of exam gloves that fit your hand, um, is a good idea. I also like, uh, having, uh, an inexpensive stethoscope. You can get a $25 one online or at CVS or a pharmacy is really good for counting heart rate, um, listening to their chest if you need to. Um, so those are worth having. Now I got, I got to ask you, would you say that the average person like me, you know, I can put a stethoscope on. I know that I can hear something, but I, I can't tell you what I'm hearing and what's in it, like is really indicating based on what I hear. Is that really worth the average person carrying out in the field? It, it, it is only because it's easy to count their heart rate that way. Okay. Most it's tough to describe to a layperson how to check up a, a dog's pulse. Yeah. You know, you can feel up in their groin for their femoral pulse and whatnot, but it's a, anybody can count heart rate with a cheap stethoscope. Gotcha. So, you know, is their heart rate 220 or is it through the roof or is it 30? So forth. So I would say that this is probably in like the third tier of things that a really complete kit would have one, but it's not the first thing I would go out and buy. Gotcha. You know, um, on the, uh, the next item would be in the first tier, and that is a pair of bandage scissors, general purpose shears to cut bandages, to do, um, just have a good pair of scissors. You never know when you're going to need one. Yeah. Pen light is a good idea. Another thing that um, should be in the, both in the truck and also in your vest would be hemostats. Yes. Right. And I, I don't mean tweezers. I mean things that look like scissors but have gripping ends on them. Things that you could use to grab a porcupine quill and pull it out. Yes. You know. Um, so the, the so I'll, I'll pause here and say the things that you should take in your vest would be like a muzzle, some bandage material, and maybe some hemostats. Yeah. You know. How do you get yourself out of trouble in the field and then get back to the truck? Essentially, you're just um, looking so, at a, a at a small enough kit that you're lugging around all day, but you have the tools and equipment to essentially triage and get back to the truck to your your more in depth kit. Yeah. yeah, and I know some other people. If you hunt in areas, well, I wish I could remember the details, but I've to- talked to some people who hunt in areas where people trap. And it's also, um, if you do that, there are some tools that you can have, like maybe a set of pliers even where I hope yeah. you never need it. Yeah. 
But if your dog gets hung up in a leg trap and you're 10 miles from the truck, what do you do? Exactly. Right. So something that's got some force in it, like a, a set of pliers where hemostats aren't strong enough to open a leg trap. Yeah. Um, so that'd be something too. I, I bought a little, uh, first aid kit that it just, I mean, it goes right into my vest. Perfect. And then in one little pouch, uh, I have a thing of hemostats. I have needle nose pliers and a small thing of channel locks because one thing I use around the house just as tools is channel locks because it just is very versatile and what you need to do. And, and to me, it's a lot better than, you know, carrying no, what's around. a channel lock. I don't know that term. What uh, is that? Vice grips, you know, vice grips. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Something that you can very adjust to, to a wider mouth, you know, smaller mouth, just something. It's, like, it's very versatile. Yes. And the needle nose, I like, can get in there if it's a, a, a really in-depth trap or snare or something like that but then wire cutters you know it's just like yeah i'm, I'm not gonna sit there and fool with fool around taking something apart or trying to loosen a snare up around my dog i'm just gonna cut it if i if i need to yeah um, so yeah all right so it, what else is there in the truck that you say that you know it, you, you just covered a lot of stuff there what what outside of what you've already covered that do you say that the average person needs to have like this will this will save your dog's life or at least get it ready to get to the vet to save its life to get to the vet yeah i like also a, a great tip is to have a container of super glue um because that is tissue glue that's great for closing up wounds so the stuff that you would get at a at a home supply store any of the brands of super glue, uh, you'd be surprised how good that is at bringing wound edges together. And um, uh, so I wanna, carry I wanna, a container of that. Yeah, I want to elaborate on that because I think just from, from you can tell me if I'm wrong, just from what I've seen hunting with people and what I hear from other people, you're going to see more wound dressing issues oh, yeah, in the field sure. than anything else. You know, we can talk Absolutely. about heat related. We can talk about snake bites. We can even talk about porcupines. You know, you come across a lot of that. Uh, but first and foremost, you see a lot of people, you know, they're dealing with dogs getting cut open from a stick yep. or whatever. And um, so you just mentioned the super glue. Would you say that the average person is better off carrying the super glue and leaving the staple at home or should they mess around with the staple gun? Because I've heard vets tell, tell it both ways that the average person shouldn't have a staple gun and that the average person should. So what's your take on that? Depends how far away you are from the vet. I mean, again, the, the assumption here is if you're near a vet, you should go to the vet. Um, and the, uh, to answer your question about super glue versus staples, it depends on the size of the wound. Right. I mean, if you have a one inch long wound from some barbed wire, you could probably clean that up and um, put a little super glue on it. One of the other fundamental features of wound management is to allow the wound to drain. Right. So in a wound like that or really any wound, you want to leave the bottom part of it a little bit open. So any of the serum and fluid that accumulates in a wound can get out. Okay. Right. You don't want to stitch it all up closed, whether it's a stapler or glue or whatever, you know, close it up a little bit. The bottom can just scab in on its own. Um, but you want a nature abhors a vacuum, right? So when you pull, if there's a cut or if uh, there is anything that separates the skin from the underlying tissue, that's going to create fluid. And that fluid, well, you want to get that out of there. And if it doesn't, 
it's going to turn into an abscess. So you, you need some, so, something to drain it, like a drain tube. When you go get uh, surgery. Not even a drain tube. Okay. Yeah, that would be a vet trick. I just mean if you're fixing a wound out in the field, don't, you. unless you've got it super, super clean, yeah. don't stitch it all the way up. Stitch it 90% of the way up. Gotcha. And I say stitch. I should say close it. Gotcha. Allow it to drain. You know, because you don't want to, if you don't get every last bunch of bacteria out of there, it's going to get infected. And it's a lot easier to manage if it can drain. Yeah. And if you've locked it all in into an anaerobic environment. Gotcha. So, um, so that's the answer. The skin stapler, that's like if you're in the absolute middle of nowhere and there's no vet for 100 miles and you've got a seven inch long wound. Gotcha. Right. That's too much for a super glue. Yeah. Um, or if it's, you know, if they're, if they're significantly bleeding and you need to close the wound fast and get the dog in a truck and get it to a vet. Yeah. Skin stapler again. I hope you never have to use it, Yeah, but it's, it's good to have. So is there a place on the dog that is uh, uh, not really conducive for staplers? Like I've heard if you get a, a long gash on the front leg, it'd be better off just to really just bandage up and maybe glue it because there's the, the, uh, the arteries going down the leg that a lot of people, you know, with inexperience using a stapler, they might nick that vessel and make it 10 times worse than what it was before. Yeah. In general, I would say, you know, nothing below the knee or the elbows should you use a stapler on, you know, really the staples for like your, the trunk, the flank, the back, anything where there's some, some extra skin. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And and that's a triage thing. You're not, that's something where if I don't do this, um, you know, there's a chance a dog's going to die. This is, you're not doing fine surgery. It's like mash out there. Absolutely. So, uh, I'd say probably the next co- most common thing that we hear a lot about, it, you hear it especially in the fall when we start getting back out there hunting, is like you, you mentioned it a couple times already, the porkies, the porcupines. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> you, you, you kind of, you, you hear all kinds of different takes on this, like you do in, in no, no matter what facet of the dog world that we hear, but you hear people that say, I'm never taking my dog to a vet because I'll just pull the quills out myself. I've heard people say that they literally just cut the quills down to the skin and then just, you know, it's like, well, I, I don't touch anything on it. And then you got the people that are afraid to pull out the first barb and go straight to the vet. You know, what what's the best, most common sense practice you can advise us to do as average people? Use hemostats and try and pull them out. Don't waste your time snipping the top off. Some people say, oh, if you snip the top off, it releases like a vacuum and it's easier to get out. That's not true. Just have a pair of needle-nose pliers or hemostats. Grab the porcupine quill as close to the skin as you can and pull it out. A lot easier if they have 30 of them than if they have a 1,000 of them. Um, this is something that if you can go to a vet, it's worth the time and money. If you're talking about a dog that's got a face full of them, because having them sedated and having them removed by a professional is just much more likely you're going to get them all. The problem with quills is that if you don't get them all, they can start migrating through the body. And they can migrate out through the neck. They can migrate through the chest cavity. They can I've seen them migrate out the top of the head. Not to mention the fact that, you know, that imagine if you were that dog and you had 
500 quills. Would you want to be held down and have someone <laughs> pull them out? Yeah. So again, if you have to do it, fine. But if you're saying it's a toss up between whether I go to the vet or whether I do this myself, I would go to the vet. The problem is if you're grouse hunting in the woods of Northwestern Pennsylvania, you're a few hours away from a vet. Yeah. So, you know, if they've got 50, yeah, a good trick is to have like a dowel or a, uh, like a broom handle and you could put it in the back of their mouth to, to keep their mouth open yeah. so you can pull them out of their hard palate and you just, you do as much as you can. So I guess what I'm saying is if a vet is an option, that's probably your best option. If a vet isn't an option, just get to work, start pulling them out one by one. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. awful. I can't tell you. I grew up in upstate New York and we had a lot of them, a lot of porcupines so I have pulled thousands and thousands of quills, and um, they're really painful. Um, out of all those thousands and thousands of uh, quills that you've pulled, how many of them came out of the same dog multiple times? Yeah, that, that's true. More than I'd like to admit, some of them <laughs> seem to have a death wish. Like some dogs are just convinced that they like to eat socks and get gastric foreign bodies. You well, know, there's... <laughs> It's, it's, defenders. it's like you get some that like they learn to avoid it. Like I'm not doing that again. Then yeah. you have some that just hold a grudge and they're pissed off and swear they're going to kill every single one that they ever see. Yeah. And it's right. just, you're, you know, it's just like, you're not Good too bright. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're consistent, but you're not too bright. So. Yeah. Right. Oh, so, all right. Besides the porcupines, you know, another one that you kind of hear a bunch of takes on, you know, don't bother going to the vet or go to the vet is snake bites. You know, I, I hear all the time that you have to go straight to the vet and, you know, sometimes deal with the anti-venom and then other guys like, I ah, just throw a couple Benadryl their way and, you know, wait for it to go down. That's the best you can do. So what, what is our answers to snake bite besides the avoidance and the vaccine that we talked about on last episode? Yeah, just, just throw them a couple of Benadryl and that's the best you can do is just not true. Um, so you can, it, a lot of it depends on, you know, how important the dog is to you, how close you are to a vet, what your budget is, you know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot you can do and it can be a difference between life and death. It depends on what kind of snake, like for example, copperhead bites aren't nearly as bad as rattlesnake bites. Um, well, you know, but there's a lot of a lot of dogs that if they get bit by a rattlesnake and you decide to go the I'm going to give them a couple Benadryl and some amoxicillin and hope for the best. You know, if that happens to 10 dogs, eight of them are going to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, if you took those 10 dogs to the vet, eight of them would live. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the, the advice you get from people can be clouded by. Um, monetary concerns. Yeah. So the advice I'm just giving you is irrespective of money. And I don't, not, not that money isn't a concern for sure it is, but uh, if you're asking what's the best care, they should be seen by a vet. Anti-venom can, I've seen it myself, make a difference between life and death. We talked in the last episode about a, a rattlesnake vaccine, also yeah. a good idea. It just minimizes the severity of the bite right so a, um I, i'm curious as to is benadryl actually doing anything is there any kind of benefit because yeah. like you said you know there's a difference between copperhead which is hemotoxic venom and then rattlesnakes which, which is a neurotoxic venom you know you have two different types of venom one attacks the nervous system and one attacks the muscle structure so like 
Does Benadryl actually help both of those? And then conversely, does that the rattlesnake vaccine ha- help any at all with the copperhead bite? The rattlesnake vaccine uh, can help with any of the sort of pit vipers, and copperheads are pit vipers, so it it it, it does help. It wouldn't help with a snake like a a coral snake. Yeah, and those they have a lot more neurotoxic. I mean, rattlesnakes uh, especially are really. It's a mess what's in venom. It's both hemolytic and it can be neuropathic. It just destroys tissue and it's really efficient at doing so. Um, and one of the reasons for that, one of the compounds that's in rattlesnake venom is histamine. And that's what gets released from your body when you're having an allergic reaction. Gotcha. And it causes fluid leakage, it causes swelling. Um, so antihistamines, like Benadryl, um, if you get it into them, right, the, 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 the most, the, the quickest and dirtiest and cheapest way to treat uh, rattlesnake envenomation is to give a dog four or five adult Benadryl and some amoxicillin. Okay. And you just hope that, you know, if you have no money and that's all you can do, there's no anti-venom. I'm not going to take him to the vet. You just don't have the money for that. Okay. Well, then give them four or five Benadryl, give them a broad spectrum antibiotic and, you know, hope for the best, you know, supportive care, call a vet, see if they can give you some other advice and so forth. But I, I get it. When I was in emergency practice, we were right on the border between a very affluent area and an area that was not affluent at all. And if they, their dog got hit by a rattlesnake, they just had to cross their fingers and hope they lived. So what we're talking about is what can you do inexpensively? Um, yeah, antihistamines, broad spectrum antibiotic. Because the other thing that's in um, the problem with any snake bite, and 30% of snake bites, by the way, of venomous snake bites are what are called dry bites. Yeah. But even if it is dry, they're injecting a whole bunch of nasty snake mouth bacteria deeply into your tissue, and that's going to get infected. So, um, yeah, antihistamines, antibiotics. And if you had to give us, so I've never had to use antivenom, thank God. Uh, but if you had to give us a ballpark, and I know this is going to be different based on the region, you know, how close they are and who houses it and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But if you had to just ballpark a price for a vial of antivenom, you know, what are we looking at here just so that we kind of know what we're dealing with if it comes down to that? I can give you like an order of magnitude. It depends on how easy it is to get and where you live. But when I was in practice, it was ballpark seven or $800 for the anti-venin. Now that didn't include hospitalization. That didn't include all the other stuff. But, um, you know, yeah. And then the advice we would give to people was, listen, if you have the money, I would give it. You know, yeah. that's that's my viewpoint on anti-venin. It can... Because the other thing is, while it sounds expensive, you're also talking about, again, where I was in practice in Northern Virginia, a day in the hospital is $1,000 yeah. to 1500 So if I can give some anti-venin for $800 and get out of the hospital two days faster, that's a deal, right? Yeah. You've actually made money. So that's the idea is that it shortens treatment time and improves outcomes. Oh, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good way of looking at it. And I, I'm just curious anecdotally, like as you have treated these dogs and you, you know, they're obviously coming in for snake bite. 
Have you noticed, um, have you heard of a lot of dogs? Like are people saying that, you know, well, we did snake aversion training with our dog and it still got nailed. Or do you think that, you know, the dogs that do snake aversion, like it's, it's actually a worthwhile prevention practice. Uh, you know, we've talked about vaccine, but what do you think about the actual snake aversion training? I think it's excellent. Yeah, I have, uh, I, I have not attended a snake bite aversion class, but I would love to. Um, I think it's an excellent idea. Yeah. If you have access to one and you hunt in areas where there are rattlesnakes, do it. Okay. Yeah. So you've never had somebody come in with, with a snake bit dog saying that, you know, well, we've I haven't actually. Okay. No. And you know, it's one of those things that like, is it going to be a hundred percent? No. Is it better off than doing nothing? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I was just curious on that. Uh, yeah. I guess, you know, to go to the next thing, uh, the, and we touched a little bit on it last week, but you know, immediate reaction, what can we do immediately for the, the, uh, temperature related injuries, both hot and cold? Uh, you know, that's probably the next, next most common thing that you see amongst people. Yeah. The key with heat stroke or hyperthermia really is prevention. Um, and what I try and just be aware of the temperature um don't go out there in the heat of the day if you have to go out there hopefully your dog has been conditioned to that you know you don't want your dog to go from basically the couch to sharp tail hunting for four hours in nebraska when it's 90 degrees out that's going to be a problem for sure um what i have gotten in the habit of doing is you know for sure every bird contact give your dog a drink set your watch for every 10 or 15 minutes to remind yourself to give them some water. Anytime you come anywhere near a Creek, just be always aware. Where is water? Where can I find water? How can I cool my dog down? Yeah. Um, and the best places to use to cool dogs down is the underside of their body, especially their groin and their underarms. Um, also their ears. And the reason for that is these are the areas where there are a lot of fairly big blood vessels. If you've ever seen an ear wound bleed or a head wound bleed, right? It never stops. Yeah. Yeah. They've got comparatively large blood vessels there. And the idea there is you want to use the cool water almost uh, as like a radiator. Like how do I, or your refrigerator, how do I pull heat out of this body as quickly as I can? Now you don't want to use ice water. Don't use cold water. Room temperature water is fine. Um, why not ice so, water just damage to the skin or does it drop the temperature too fast? Yeah, they can, it can drop it too fast. Uh, and it can, ironically, if you, if you put them in cold water, what happens is it constricts the capillaries and the blood vessels and the skin. So in fact, you retard the heat migration. Gotcha. So you're getting the opposite effect. Gotcha. Remember their body temperature. We're talking about if they're, they're 105 or 106, even in, uh, you know, a pool at ambient temperature at 85 is still 20 degrees cooler than what they are. Yeah. I got so you. another uh, bit. It was when you're cooling them down, stop when their body temperature gets to one Oh three. Yeah. Right. Because you can cause rebound hypothermia. So, um, <laughs> stop cooling them when their body temperature is one Oh three. Otherwise you don't want them to go from one Oh six to 97 that can jack their system up too. Yeah, so. And you're just going back and forth playing ping pong. 
Well, let, right. let, let's talk about the cold weather. You know, what what are the issues about warming them up? Is there a way to warm them up too fast? You know, is it are we using the same locations that we use to help cool them down if we needed to? You know, what, is there really any difference or just, just do the opposite? You're just using warm instead of cold. You're doing warm, but I would avoid water. You know, water in general tends to, uh, you know, pull heat out of them. If you have a dog that's really cold, if you can let them you know, get them near a heater, give them a blanket, let them uh, curl up and just sort of conserve their body heat and just gradually warm them up. Um, that's probably the best thing to do is just get them near a heat source. Don't try and do anything too quickly. You certainly don't want to burn them or anything. Um, but, you know, they seem to be, a, they, can, they can tolerate a lot lower body temperatures. That doesn't mess their system up nearly as much as high body temperatures. And a great example I got when I was in vet school is if you think of a body as like an egg, right? And just a raw egg, that's all protein, Yeah. right? If I take an egg and I heat it up and I scramble it, right? That egg looks an awful lot different. What you've done is you've dramatically changed the structure of that protein. If I take a scrambled egg and then cool it back down to room temperature, it doesn't turn back into a raw egg all those proteins are permanently damaged. That's the problem with uh, in, in the human body or in the canine body, when you heat them up, your coagulation, your blood clotting system is all proteins. The lining of your intestinal tract, your brain, your blood, all these things can suffer permanent damage if the body temperature gets too high. And where we really start to worry is about 106 or so um well that, and yeah, that, 106 that or goes higher back into that goes back into the first aid kit that i don't think we did mention was a thermometer a thermometer for um, sure does, yeah. does it have to be you know a rectal ther- thermometer or is the little digital readouts okay i've heard those digital readouts on dogs aren't exactly the most uh accurate uh what, what's your take on that rectal thermometer for sure you want to measure core body temperature and while some of those ear thermometers can work okay um, i think it depends a lot on brand and what they're trying to do is just be able to take the temperature quickly yeah what you want in this situation is to take it accurately yeah so just get a you know a thermometer with one of those plastic cases and just throw it in there and, uh, you know, this is kind of the case you'd worry about, but back to your point about the hypothermia, that's not as big of a deal, you know, that is a hyperthermia that can be fatal hypothermia. You know, I just don't, we don't see an awful, a uh, lot of that. Maybe my colleagues in Minnesota would say something different, but, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, if they're out and they're exercising, um, they have a way of sort of keeping themselves warm. Yeah. Uh, if they're in the truck waiting for their turn, a blanket, some kind of heater system so that, you know, you don't have the back of your truck at 70 degrees, but, you know, and try another, and have it above 40. And another thing that, you know, if you're building the, the, the dream emergency and first aid kit, you know, I've, I've seen a couple of people that they have those emergency heat packs and emergency ice packs back at the truck. Yes. And then that way, you know, Excellent. it says pop, put it right under the armpits and you're good to go. Um, you got it. Yep. So we're back at the truck. We t- what's the Mark Alcott endorsed tailgate check? Walk us through what you're checking, what you're looking for, what you're using. Uh, that's going to be realistic. You know, it's. I think there's a disconnect here that to where, 
you know, you read an article or you listen to somebody's advice on what to do at the tailgate, and this is like they go through absolutely everything. And I'm sorry, the average person isn't going to spend an hour and a half no. doing no. A, a veterinary check at their tailgate. It's just, you know, it's just like we want to be thorough. We want it to have a purpose and, and a reason. What what is actually realistic and should be expected of the average owner to check on their dogs? I would say do three things. One, check their eyes, right? Any, any seeds, anything in and around their eyes that can go from a, a small solvable problem on the tailgate to a real big problem very quickly. So check and make sure there's nothing wrong with their eyes. The other thing is their feet have a good feel of their feet in between the pads, the toes. Are there any cuts, wounds, anything like that? No foot. I was a, a no foot, no dog. I used to be a horse vet. <laughs> we say the same thing. No foot, no horse. I like that. So check their feet for sure. And the third thing is just run your hands over every inch of their body, feeling for any prickers, any burrs, any wounds. Do you pull your hand back and you see some blood? Where's that coming from? Yeah. So just check every inch. And you can do all that in five minutes, yes. 10 minutes. But uh, do it, do it thoroughly, but do it every time. Yeah, especially if you know where to look. And I, I want to – the eyes. You know, so many people, yeah. they just look in their eyes like, oh, it's clear. No, you need to actually like kind of pick up the eyelids, look, especially in their little tear duct. That's where I find yeah. – the majority of the grass seeds, it's like they all travel in the corner of the eyes, the, the yeah. corner of the eyes. And sometimes yep. you can literally just with the tip of your pinky, you know, if it's clean, just kind of pull it on out without putting your finger in their eye. Like there's that much right. stuff built up into it. But if there is just like one or two little small one in there, uh, what you're talking about earlier is the eye saline in your kit. You know, yeah, just, just flush quick, it out. Yeah, just flush yep. it out real quick, and it takes two seconds. Uh, it's, it's not that big of a deal, and the dogs, you know, they, they get used to doing it as long as you make it a, a yeah. normal occurrence. And if you start doing it after every training session too, then, you know, when you go out hunting, then it's, it's the same thing because it's just part of their training. So – yeah, if you don't have saline, squirt them with your water bottle. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, you know? Now, I did hear, like, if there is a scratch on the eye, maybe you don't want to use yeah. saline. Is that – do I have no, that right, saline true. or water? Nope. Nope, that's fine. Okay. For short little things like that, it's not that big of a deal. What you don't want to do, what you may be thinking of is if you have a scratch in the eye, you don't want to put any steroid ointment yes. in that eye. Yeah. You'd want to use just antibiotic eye ointment, but – I'm not even sure. You know, that's something else you could have in your in your kit too. If you have some eye ointment, uh, um, that's different than neosporin. You don't put neosporin in the eye. Gotcha. Um, but you know, if your vet has ever given you, um, if you've ever had an eye problem, you've got a tube of uh, triple antibiotic eye ointment. Yeah, just antibiotics. I wouldn't carry the steroid eye ointment because. That's something you shouldn't do without your vet telling you. Yeah. But just straight triple antibiotic eye ointment is like, um, that's pretty straightforward. You could put that in almost anything. Gotcha. You know, as a, as a stopgap. So what are we missing? Is there anything that you, you say that we need to touch on before moving on to the next topic? Or is it, you know, have we, we pretty much covered all the basics that the average person will probably run into in the field? I would also, I would carry, um, you know, we talked about the bandage material. I think a couple other things uh, that would be good was is to have some broad spectrum antibiotics like a clavamox. Get your vet to give you, you know, some clavamox just to have in the truck. 
Same thing with uh, diarrhea medication. I've had great luck with something called metronidazole or flagyl. They're the same thing. You know, having a few of those pills on hand can be wonderful if you show up to grouse camp and your dog blows out with, you know, some bloody diarrhea and you're like, oh, great, now what? Yeah. Metronidazole works wonders. So as far as drugs, those two are good. You know, the only other tidbit I guess I'd share with you is the thing I've had the best luck with for skunked dogs is dish soap, like joy (laughs) dish soap. Uh, That's probably the best. So Lucy went out last year. She got tagged two days in a row. Um, The first one wasn't that bad. You know, I I, I think I told this story on the podcast forever ago. Wasn't that bad. It was just like, okay, not too bad. Use some dish soap, be done with it. The next day she went out there and she made it worth it that next time. And it's, I swear it, it was months later. Like if the wind was just right, you would still get a whiff of that thing. And I mean, I had to use every single concoction and mixture that, you know, you hear everybody talk with, we did the dish soap mixed in with the, uh, the baking soda and what baking was, soda. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a third ingredient in there. And I mean, I had to do that four or five times and we, we just had to throw the collar away like that. That was yeah. beyond safe. She got, sounds like she got a good, Oh, she, and, yeah. and she had it in her mouth at one point too, because it just like, she, she got drilled with it. Uh, so the skunk, it's just like, it definitely makes me thankful to uh, ha- own a truck because I don't know how she would have gotten home if I was in a car or an SUV that she had to SUV. ride back with me. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Oh, God. <laughs> so uh, anything else in the field, any common occurrences that you, you saw a lot of at, at your practice? No, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about wounds. You know, it's really just uh, the bandage material, antibiotics, clean it out really well. Um, Have some super glue if you need to. (laughs) Leaving a gap at the bottom end of the wound. I mean, one of the principles of wound therapy is to like allow these wounds to drain, especially if you're not in a surgery room doing a surgical fix, which you won't be. But on the tailgate of your truck, don't feel the need to close it all up. Let it drain. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. So all good, all good practice. I'm going to have to go listen to that back. And like you said, if you have that list of, of items on your first aid kick, I'll, I'll, I'll put that up on the website and the social media post. but I need to go back and listen and kind of jot down some of the, uh, the, the side suggestions that you covered. Um, so moving on, you know, there, there's one thing about, you know, we obviously need to be brought up on how to vaccinate and, and address certain things in the field with our dogs, like we talked about last week and this week. But there's a whole nother slew of things that as dog owners and handlers, we should be aware of and cognizant of, especially when we are either A, planning to breed our own dogs or B, even just searching for our next dog from from a, mm-hmm. the breeder. So really what right. we're talking about is is what me and you discussed on the side is this, we're just calling it breed ready, whether that's you're breeding it or your breeder's breeding the dog, right? So in your opinion, what health and genetic factors should be met before deciding to breed at all? I think what, what I want to focus on today uh, is – talking about medical factors, right? Not performance factors. I mean, every kennel has their own performance criteria for what's the difference between a dog that should be bred and a dog that shouldn't. You know, some kennels have very high standards and use 
objective third-party evaluation systems like NAVDA or AKC and others don't. You know, where you fit on that spectrum is entirely up to you. That's kind of one of the things that makes this country great. You can you can make up your own mind there. What I'm be talking about is just medical stuff that really anybody should do. Yes. So from a health standpoint, the first thing to talk about are like the common veterinary certifications. Most commonly is HIPS. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about more of those in depth in a second, but the areas where you can, that, that are commonly looked at are hips, elbows, because uh, they can get elbow, some breeds get elbow dysplasia. Uh, there are some eye problems in certain breeds. There's a SURF exam, Canine Eye Registry Foundation, CERF, that some breeds, um, breeders very commonly, uh, eye problems are common enough in that breed the responsible breeders have all of their their dogs uh, eye tested by an ophthalmologist. Also, there's some thyroid testing. For Again, some breeds are really prone to thyroid problems. It depends on your individual breed. You know, I don't know all, all the breeds well enough to know what you should be doing, but a, a responsible breeder will know, hey, like, you know, we have a history of fill in the blank in our breed, and I want to make sure that I don't have it in my lines. That's why we test for it. Yeah. So um, I think probably the thing we should talk the most about is hips, right? Hip dysplasia is still out there. Uh, responsible breeders want to avoid it. And the two tests for hip dysplasia are OFA and PenHip. And OFA stands for Orthopedic Foundation for Animals. It's a test that's been around for decades. And it's basically taking some x-rays of your dog's hips and sending them to the OFA and having them evaluated by three different radiologists. And they get a score. And it's a subjective score, right? Good, excellent, dysplastic. Some dogs already have signs of arthritis, which they will comment on. Um, and, you know, they're easy to do. They've been around for a while. I'm personally a very big fan of pen hip testing and pen hip is spelled P N N hip. And the reason for that is it was developed at the university of Pennsylvania pen uh, by their, an orthopedic surgeon there. And there's a couple of advantages in my mind to pen hip testing versus OFA. First of all, um, pen hip testing can be done on dogs as young as, six, seven months of age versus most OFA tests are done on dogs older than two years of age. So again, you can know a lot sooner if you look at this just from an economic standpoint, right? I mean, do I know whether, is this a dog I want to keep and feed for the next year and a half until they're two, or do I want to know right now? So uh, so, I, I want to ask you a question on that. You know, we, we're advised as dog owners not to run our dogs too heavy until, until they're fully mature because their growth plates and everything and their joints haven't closed in like they normally have. So if you're getting your hips checked that early, are you really getting an accurate readout for what you're going to be dealing with a year down the road? You, yeah, you are actually. And they've looked at that time and time again, because it's not the hip, pen hip is not about closing of the, uh, the growth plates if you will, what the pen, what pen hip does is it measures joint distraction index. And basically what that means is if you think of the hip as a ball and socket joint, 
right? The ball of the, is the, the head of a femur, and the socket is the acetabulum in the pelvis. Yeah. What the pen hip test does is they're sedated and they're in this special trough, and it they take an X-ray of your dog relaxed, and then they take an X-ray of the dog with the hips um, maximally distracted. Yeah. And what they're measuring is how far out of that socket can I pull the ball, right? The more I can pull it out, the worse it is. That means that's a very loose joint. If I can barely move it out at all, that's a tight joint. That's what you want. Okay. So that also leads us to, in my mind, the major advantage of pen hip is that you get a numerical number. It's objective. It's not good, right? What does good mean? Yeah. It means yeah. different from one radiologist to another. What I want to know is their distraction index is 0. 0.23. Yeah. That's a number. And I can have an average number for the breed. PenHip has a massive database. So you have a real good idea of what these hips look like. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's numbers and not, it's objective, not subjective. You can do it a little bit younger. And uh, they just have a massive database right now. So um, I'm a big fan of that. Gotcha. So tell me how. It's tougher to find them. I'll tell you that's one, one downside to pen hip is um, it's a downside depending on how you look at it. But you have to be certified as a veterinarian to do these tests. Wow. So not every veterinarian does it. Gotcha. Most veterinarians can take OFA films. You have to search to find a veterinarian that is certified to do pen hip but most of the vets that do any kind of repro work yeah. they're usually pen hip certified gotcha so how how do we interpret the pen hip results because i know as i as i've looked at different litters you know you may not see it on the pedigrees but you'll see it on the breeder announcements the litter announcements right and so it's just like you just see these numbers and it's okay as a, a newbie, how do I interpret these numbers or say this is my first time breeding my dog, you know, how do I interpret it to where it's like, okay, this number against the breed standard, I should not breed my dog. You know, what, how, how, what's really the cutoff? What's the red flags in those numbers and how do we interpret them? A lot of that answer depends on what's normal for the breed. Um, but in general, you know, when you start getting numbers that are up above point five, again, this is just my personal opinion. Yeah. When you start getting numbers up above point five or point six, that's a pretty loose hip. Um, I wouldn't say that you shouldn't breed that dog, but what I would say is if you are determined to breed that dog, breed it to another dog with very tight hips. That makes sense. Yeah. So you know, I would not breed a 0.6 to a 0.6. Um, but if you had to breed a 0.6, find a dog that's a 0.2, <laughs> you know, and then you end up with and a just point try. <laughs> well, that's the idea is over yeah. time. Can you tighten up those hips? Yeah. You know, so that's again, people are free to do what they want in this country. But again, if you have that number of 0.6 and above is pretty high. So, you know, um, what, and that what, means, what and would what, you say on that to where I'm going to ask you and you, you know, if you don't know or, or don't want to comment, just say so. But uh, 
you know, you, when you're talking about the characteristics of the dogs, you know, somebody thinks it's very simple to where it's like you have a dog that doesn't want to point, but you want to breed it, breed it to a dog that does point, and then they'll throw mm-hmm. dogs that you know should meet in the middle. How accurate of that is with is this with the hips and joints? Like, is it is it like if you do a point six to a point two, are the pups going to be safe, or are you still just kind of flipping a coin on that? Yeah, I wouldn't say you're flipping a coin, and I wouldn't say that the it's, it's complex. <laughs> but the answer is you, you're you're better off. The odds are better in your favor if you do that. And hey, listen, there are some breeds that have and breeders that have done a fantastic job. I'll give you an example of German Shepherds. Yeah, twenty, thirty years ago, that was a breed that was rampant with hip dysplasia. It's as a breed, it's much better now because of responsible breeders. They've bred that out. They've realized, hey, listen, you know, they've used things like pen hip and they've followed the data and they've said, I'm not going to breed dogs with loose hips together. And it doesn't make, you won't necessarily see a difference in that next litter, but you'll see a difference over five, 10, 15 years. So that's kind of the thing is uh, there's no guarantees but, um, you know, it's better than nothing, yeah. I guess is what I would say. So, so you're saying in your personal opinion, 0. 0.6, you're, you're not, you're not breeding that dog personally, but if, I you, if you are Me personally, make no. sure it's a 0.2, you know, you, you want, okay. So, yeah. And it's not, yeah, and it's not it doesn't mean the puppies are going to be 0. 0.4. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way, but yeah. yeah, if you have a dog with loose hips, um, yeah. again, I mean, I, I'm, We'll talk about this a little bit too. I have kind of a unique viewpoint in that I'm a veterinarian and also a poodle pointer breeder. Yeah. So it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. For me, for our kennel, you know, thankfully as a breed, we don't have much of a problem with with uh, hip dysplasia. My last two females that I tested, they their distraction index was 0.17, really tight. Nice. So you know, we don't have much of a problem with that. So. Um, you know, I can afford to be pretty picky and we're pretty low volume, right? Well, I'm not looking to put out 15 liters a year so I can right. be choosy. And, and that's know? what I was about to ask you. Like, is it, is that, do you think that the poodle pointers haven't had an issue because of really just, they're, they're not, they're more esoteric. They're not as popular yeah. as the other breeds. Or do you think it's because of the breed club that's associated with it? But then also that's kind of related to, you know, you just don't have that many more people doing it because I mean, let's, let's be honest, the German short hairs have a breed club too, and it doesn't really do a whole lot in terms of breed standards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, listen, any responsible breeders of hardcore hunting dogs, they know that the last thing they want is a dog that's going to break down at three years of age, you know, that they just can't take the miles. So a lot of us benefit you know, from the work of people that have come decades before. In our breed, it's the guys like Bob Ferris and Bill Athens, all the way back to Bodo Winter Health, where they just, you can't, they, um, dogs had to hold up. Yeah. Um, I also think that for our breed in particular, they're not part of AKC. A lot of people don't know about them, which is fine with us. Yeah. You know, the last thing you want, if you really love a breed, the last thing you want is for it to get real popular. Yeah. Right? Exactly. I can, we can all name a list of breeds that have been wrecked over the last couple of decades. 
by people who start seeing dollar signs yep. and they, they're not breeding the best of the best. They're just looking for a litter because they can get $2,000 a puppy and they don't care who they breed together. Exactly. That is not what you want. If you no. love that breed, that is not what you want. And right, right now that, you know, you don't really come across that too much in the sporting field right now. Cause I think they're a little bit more distracted by everything that ends with the word oodle right now, but eventually they're going to come back to the sporting <laughs> dog breeds. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. So what, besides the hips and the joints, what are some of other things that maybe some, some of the th- considerations that you would say the average breeder doesn't consider that they, they really should like, what can get passed down? Like, is there uh, a cancer probability? Is there epilepsy? Is there, you know, what is their skin conditions? You know, so on and so forth. What other things should we be looking at before somebody says, I want to breed that dog? Uh, just from a health perspective again we're not talking about pointing or retrieving or any of that yeah, stuff sure i would ask your breeder depends on like the the um the conversation in one breed is going to be different than in the conversation for another breed so ask them are there some breed you know do you have any uh particular genetic or congenital problems in in your breed and you know the breeder would say you know we really don't or occasionally we'll see this but we test for it through you know these hip dysplasia screenings for example but you hit on a couple of the ones to potentially ask about epilepsy and seizures is one of them um there are some uh, there's a von willebrand's disease which is a coagulation problem that classically had been associated with Doberman Pinschers is kind of the classic breed for that. But again, that breeders and that breed have done a commendable job of breeding it out. So you don't see it nearly as much as you used to. With the onset and the availability of easy testing, you can find out who are carriers for this and just don't breed them. Yeah. You know? Um, so other than other than those hips and uh, elbows, eyes, thyroid, just ask whatever breed you're interested in. Ask your breeder, hey, you know, especially if you're new to the breed, you know, and you don't know that much about them, um, just ask. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So what are some of the other important considerations if I'm wanting to breed, uh, you know, maybe even outside of health risk, you know, maybe just the the process of breeding is there a benefit or pros and cons to doing ai versus traditional breeding you know what do we yeah. see out of the ai do, is is there enough research to show that ai produces healthier dogs or unhealthier dogs you know what's your take on that oh ai can work great oh yes yeah. in fact i just uh, bred one of my dogs this past week versus and ai stands for artificial insemination and what that it's any anything that's not live cover where the male actually breeds the female. So especially when you're talking about, um, you know, uh, the dog, that you have a female and the dog you really want to breed to is 1500 miles away. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, you can throw your dog in the back of the truck and drive out there. I've done that. <laughs> um, but AI, they've been doing it in horses for decades. The technology is, uh, is excellent. The effectiveness is almost as good as live cover. If you find, if you have, uh, you know, especially a, a veterinarian that's comfortable doing it and has done it before and so forth. So, um, I guess what I would say is if you're thinking about breeding your dog, um, you'll want to have your vet do 
what's called a breeding soundness exam. And uh, this is where your vet, and you'd want to find a vet that does a lot of repro work, right? Many vets don't. And, you know, it's one of those things that if you don't do something very frequently, it's hard to get very good at it. Yeah. So in your area, there's probably a vet, if you live in somewhat of a population dense area that does repro. So just ask around, you know, who do you use? Ask the folks that you hunt or train with or go do an online um, search um, and just find a vet that does a lot of repro work. They'll typically also be certified in OFA uh, just because that's a question that a lot of, if you're working with a lot of breeders, you're going to want to be able to do pen hip. Um, So, and a breeding soundness exam is basically a, a physical exam and some lab testing that's focused on the reproductive system. Gotcha. And you're evaluating them for all the things that could be problems from a medical standpoint. Yeah. Right. So in females, if you're the female owner, typically this is done when your female's in heat and the vet will do a vaginal exam. You know, are there any structural problems that would complicate breeding? Do they have any strictures or bands or anything else that might be a problem that you'd want to know about? For example, a vaginal stricture, what that means is there's a narrowing in the vaginal tract. And the last thing that you would want to do is try and breed your female. Um, and if she has one of these fibrous bands of tissue across her vagina, you know, when she gets bred, not only is that really going to hurt her, but if the male tries to breed her and it hurts him, what happens if it, you know, it hurts him to the point where he's nervous about ever breeding a female again? Right. So these are things that you want to do. You figure out, we'll just let nature take its course. Mm, yeah, it's not a great idea. I mean, it could, it's just riskier to do it that way. Yeah. So have your vet get involved. Do a breeding soundness exam. Um, your vet will also collect some cells from the vagina and look at them under the microscope. And what do they look like? What stage of heat cycle is she in? And then you can kind of plan out, you know, when you should, whether you're doing live cover or AI. Um, you can start having a more specific conversation about when she's going to be most fertile, right? A lot of guys, um, you know, for example, if uh, guys that own the male dog, they'll say, I don't want to see the female until she's in at least day eight, right? Where day one is the day where you first notice bleeding. So um, another thing that they'll do is a brucellosis test, Brucella abortus is a bacteria that's highly contagious and um, it's a, technically a sexually transmitted disease. So you want to make sure that your female doesn't have it and the male that you're going to breed to doesn't have it either. Because if they get brucella, it's a bad disease and it's one of those rare conditions that can actually be spread to people. So definitely test them for brucellosis. Um, and then usually they will also do some hormone testing, specifically progesterone levels. That's a real good blood way of testing where your female is in her heat cycle. So I, 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 let's go down the female track a little bit more, you know, um, clearly you just said, get with your vet, do, do a repro check, you know, figure out, come up with a game plan. But just talk generalities here. I know that's dangerous, but you know we're not going to cover the uh, the outliers here. But you know, just real quick, just in your opinion, you know what is too early, what is too late, and what is, what is too often. You know, you you 
you have some people that want to breed on the very first heat, and then you have some people that, you know, want to breed all the way till the dog is nine or 10. And then you have some people that mm-hmm. just like every year in between then, in your opinion, where, where do you start and where do you cut it off at? What I can tell you what we do at our kennel is we don't start breeding dogs until they're at least two. That's pretty commonly accepted advice. And the reason for that is not biological. There are plenty fertile at their first heat cycle. But what you want to do is allow them by waiting until two, you allow them not only to reach full skeletal maturity, um, they've gone through a heat or two, but also you're giving them a chance to see if anything like epilepsy is going to show up to see if anything like early hip dysplasia is going to show up. So in general, you know, breeding dogs less than two, um, some people do it again. We don't in our kennel. Um, so we like to wait until they're two years of age. And then, um, what you, what you typically like to do is once you start breeding them, ideally you keep breeding them. If you breed them and then skip a couple cycles and then try and breed them again, it can be tougher. The statistics are that her likelihood of conception is a little bit lower. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. If you take a lot of heat cycles off, uh, especially if they've been bred and then they've been, you know, barren for a couple of years and then you try again, it's not to say that it won't work because it certainly can, but your statistics are a little bit less. Yeah. So typically what they say is once you start, keep going. I personally only like to breed females three times. I may be a bit of an outlier there. It's tough on them. You know, it's tougher on them when they're five and when they're two. Again, people have different rules on that, but I just, you know, it's a lot of work getting for this female to get pregnant, be pregnant, raise puppies, you know, um, so I, I follow the advice I got from my friend and mentor, Bob Ferris. You know, I only breed females three times. Gotcha. And then they get spayed and then they're retired and they get to just hunt birds. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and obviously there, there's different things that go into this. that can change that, you know, say they have a rough pregnancy and, and you have to do a C-section on, on some, yeah. something, you know, that yeah. can, drastically change it so don't go sitting there thinking like all right i'm breeding my dog for the first time and i got two more after this one that's you know take it by you never know what's gonna happen you have no absolutely right so as far as you know you you said it you you do your own kennel you breed so what i've never bred dogs before what other things what golden bit of knowledge or just personal opinions would you put out there to everybody to to improve their breeds and these dogs that we love so much over time i think one of the one of the things that um people need to do you talk about prospective puppy owners yes i think that um you know if you're, if you're going to make this kind of investment, not just in money, but in time, the, you as the potential puppy buyer, um, you need to make kind of an honest decision, right? Are you looking for a serious hunting partner or are you seeking primarily a pet that you may occasionally hunt with, right? Either way is fine. 
Um, but just be honest with yourself and sort of decide that going into it. Because a lot of breeders have sort of bifurcated or, or sort of split there too. Like there are breeders in every breed where these are high-end performance bird dogs for hardcore people. On the other end are folks that are primarily looking for a pet that they might hunt occasionally, but it's not that big of a deal. Just find your match, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, we're starting to see North America really is starting to start to see breedings of inbred dogs from breeders that have no real genetic education and for sure health issues follow along behind that. And, and we see a lot of litters that are inbred from breeders that don't know really what they're doing. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a definition. Actually, people say, well, what's inbred mean? Yeah. Here's one quick, simple definition. If you look at a pedigree of a puppy um, and you look at their grandparents, right? A dog that is inbred has two grandparents that are the same dog. All right. So, you know, like the sire, of the sire is also the sire of the dam, right? That's too close. So if the grandfather right? on both sense? sides is the same one, then stay too away. close. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's a difference between that and line breeding, which I'm a fan of. In fact, frankly, to get consistency, you have to line breed. And what that means is you're, uh, it's a kind of a, there are specific numbers about, you know, what's the coefficient of uh, inbreeding and so forth that, that we can get down a rat hole into the math, but we're not going to do that. The point is the, the upside of line breeding is predictability and consistency within a litter, right? There are folks um, that, uh, you know, one of the guys I admire tremendously is Clyde Vetter, who has had massive success with German shorthairs. And he is an excellent breeder and he has now consistency to the point where, you know, the sire and dam might be navidiversal champions and they'll have six puppies and four of them will be versatile champions. Yeah. Right. That kind of consistency, it's not hit or miss. They're just really good at it. Um, and you can get to that level. That takes a lot of experience and expertise. But if you really understand the breed and you know what to do and what not to do, you can find that kind of stuff out there. That's rare. Again, those are the folks, that's for the folks that are looking for that high end performance dog where that kind of stuff matters. They're looking for something very specific. Um, but it all comes from pedigree analysis. There's a great computer program called Breedmate that um, you can use that serious breeders will use to sort of evaluate pedigrees. And there's a, a lot of homework that goes into it. It's, it, it really is like you're talking about the, the, the inbreeding coefficient and the, the breed mate, like <laughs> it's a rabbit hole that if you jump down, you know, we'll see you in a couple months because if you really get into that oh, stuff, yeah, like it's for sure, that's one thing that I have not you know, found myself wanting to read books on myself. It's just, you know, genetics, right. you know, maybe one day if I decide that I want to get into the breeding game, I will. But, uh, right. but as of right now, the, the, I, I'm just going to trust the, the more knowledgeable people on this. And so, yeah. and so with that being said, what else is there from a health perspective, whether it's breeding or any, anything else that we've talked about last <laughs> week and this week that as a responsible dog owner, I should be aware of, or at least, you know, kind of, 
church up my knowledge on? I, I would say one of the things that people should do is find a, and work with a veterinarian that is, is sort of used to dealing with um, hunting dogs. You know, hopefully you all have one that's like that where, you know, they're not mortified if a dog comes in and they've got scars on their body from, you know, grouse hunting for three or four years. Um, what you want to do is find a veterinarian who sees that and says, wow, this is awesome. This dog must have an awesome life. Where do you hunt? You know, that kind of stuff rather than somebody who's not really, who doesn't really get it. You know, in large animal practice, you generally want to find a veterinarian that grew up on a farm. Yeah. Right. If you have horses, you want to find a vet that grew up with horses. So people who know your game, um, and that can, that, that can be really valuable as far as knowing it's that that's the art of veterinary medicine. You know, what is a big deal and what isn't. And one of the things you learn as time goes by with experience, I've been a vet for 26 years now. You know, I know a lot of things now that I didn't know when I graduated from vet school. And it just comes from knowing like, what should I really be worried about? And what are things that are like, nah, and I'm worried about it. You'll be fine. Um, so experience and, uh, especially with, uh, if you have the, if you have the ability, if, if you live in an area that's got, you know, more than one vet in it, obviously if that's, if you live in an area where that's a luxury you can't afford, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but a, a tight partnership with your veterinarian is really, really important. Oh yeah. And there's some side benefits to that too. Like they, like you said, they understand and they get excited when you come in the door because they get to deal with the, the, the type of dogs that they really enjoy dealing with. Yeah. Right. And so it, it's, it's good for them, you know, may it maybe cut you a break on the price, but also, you know, you might end up with a vet in your hunting camp. So, you know, when something goes sure. wrong, you got that, that access right there. So there's perks to it that, uh, if you really try and find one that's like-minded like yours, uh, you know, yeah. it, th- there's some side benefits to that too. So, well, I definitely appreciate it, Mark. It, it's it's been a blast. You know, this stuff is very important, and it's it's always fun to go down and talk about. And you, there's always something to learn. Before I let you go, you know, you you mentioned last week your your app that you've been developing and everything. Go ahead and plug that. Plug your kennel where people can find you. Maybe ask you some questions if they got it. Just get a hold of you. How do they do that? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm a fortunate to be a member of the North American Poodle Pointer Alliance. Uh, it's a group of breeders throughout North America. We're at poodlepointer.org, P-U-D-E-L, pointer, one word, dot org. Um, you can, my kennel's name is Surrey Bird Poodle Pointers. Uh, Surrey is S-U-R-R-E-Y. Bird Poodle Pointers. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, um, and the app. Yeah. So uh, interestingly, I'm a, 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 an emergency vet, or I was an emergency vet before getting really frustrated with the lack of after hours medical record access. So I went back to business school and started a company called VitusNet, V-I-T-U-S Vet. Um, so you go to the app store, download it, tell your veterinarian about it. One of the many benefits of having this app is that you can access your medical records in an emergency or if you're traveling, which can uh, mean the difference between life and death. Um, but it also makes it a lot easier to communicate with your veterinarian. We have like, we make it easy for you to send texts to your vet and back and forth just to try and make it easier 
um, to bring veterinary practices kicking and screaming into the 21st century away from the telephone and fax machine. (laughs) (laughs) We are are a profession that's not necessarily early adopters of technology, but um, that's where our clients are. I really got an eye-opening when I went back to business school. So the goal of VitusVet is to just make it easier for veterinarians and pet owners to connect with each other. Absolutely. So, um, and it's a great yeah, appreciate concept. the opportunity I, to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to definitely check out Vitus Vet because, you know, I didn't know about it till I, we linked up and I'm going to definitely have that in, in, uh, installed for this hunting season. Cause you know, traveling across state lines, some States actually require you to have the vaccination records on hand. And, you know, a lot of people just want it. It's good practice to travel with those anyway. Uh, so, you know, having it on your phone as opposed to, like we said last week, a trapper keeper, keeper full of files and f- papers and all that other junk. It's just like, you know, one spot yeah. and good to go. So I think it's a great idea and I'm going to check it out. And hopefully everybody else does. Thank you. So, yeah. Appreciate well, it. All right, Mark. Well, I'm definitely going to have to have you on again sometime. Again, thanks for your time and, uh, you know, good luck this season. And we'll check back later. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog it yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just have to replace it again and year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.